Welcome back to Don't Give This Tape to Earl, the June 2017 edition. How have you been? I hope you've been doing better than me. Um, spent a lot of June fighting off a really nasty case of walking pneumonia. And let me tell you, after they gave me antibiotics that knocked me flat on my butt, uh, this was not walking pneumonia. This was pneumonia that was awake for two hours at a time and sleeping for two hours at a time. So, uh, yeah, June's kind of been a blur. It's lovely. Doing a little bit better now. Uh, fortunately, I have a a work situation where I am able to work from home. And that, uh, you know, that keeps the lights on. That's a, that's a plus. That's always a bonus, being able to not be evicted from the house. That's right, Obi. And so, of, of course, after a while at work, you know, they uh, they start getting a little bit itchy, like, um, you know, please come in. So, back to uh, back to a normal schedule, which after a couple of weeks of sleeping two hours, being awake two hours, rinse and repeat. Yeah, I'm I'm having a little bit of a hard time. I'm recording this in the wee hours of the morning because I came home from work yesterday evening, technically yesterday evening, and uh, fixed myself dinner, ate, and as soon as I had a full belly, boom, out like a light. Woke up on the couch about four hours later, and it's like, ah, oh, crap. The wheels have fallen off my sleep cycle. Anyway, on the mend now, so I thought it was time to cast some pods hither and yon. That is also correct, Obi. Obi's very talkative tonight. I think he wants scritchies. He also wonders why I'm recording a podcast at two in the morning. There you go. What's going on in the world? We finally have a premiere date for Star Trek Discovery, and the premiere date is September 24th. We will get the first eight episodes every Sunday night through November 5th, and then the show will break until January before showing the second half of the season, which is... It kind of knocked the wind out of me to hear that Discovery would be doing that, and yet, at the same time, I'm so terribly accepting of various other shows doing it. I, I guess, you know, I have to break myself of the habit of thinking that just because we have a new Star Trek show, it is going to be scheduled like Star Trek shows of the past. Evidently, it is not. In the world of Star Wars, the Han Solo anthology movie has lost its directors four months into shooting. Now, everyone's being kind of... Everyone's trying to downplay this quite a bit. Oh, it's creative differences. Yeah, but creative differences are also supposedly what happened to the Beatles and Pink Floyd. Um, let's not kid ourselves. To be four months into shooting a movie and suddenly you replace the director, 
that's or directors because there were two of them. It was the um, was the two guys who directed the Lego Movie. So you really wonder what the straw was that broke the camel's back four months in. I mean, was somebody doing lines of coke off the top of Chewie's head or something? Surely the story will come out, but it's it's just one of those things where you kind of uh, find yourself wondering what's what's going on here. We have lost some people. We have lost some really big names. Uh, first off, Adam West died now. Adam West was in his 80s, so it shouldn't really be a surprise, but it still stings. Um, Adam West was my Batman. Now, of course, I can't really claim complete objectivity on this, because Adam West being my Batman is tied up with memories of after-school TV watching at my grandmother's house, stuffing her grilled cheese sandwiches into my face and drinking probably too much Dr. Pepper. And I still watch Batman stuff grilled cheese sandwiches into my face and drink too much Dr. Pepper today. Life goals. Life goals. I'm very sorry we have lost Adam West. I think he was a better Batman than a lot of people give him credit for. A lot of the stuff that he was tasked with doing in that show would fall flat if there was even the hint of a smirk in his performance. But there wasn't. I mean, this was Leslie Nielsen-level deadpan. It was masterful, and that made the show. We have lost Keith Robinson, Mr. Intellivision. Keith was a software designer and programmer Mattel Electronics in television video game console in the early 80s, responsible for such games as Thin Ice and Tron Solar Sailor. Now, when Mattel Electronics suddenly dropped the entire Intellivision project like a hot potato after losing millions of dollars in 1983 on the project, Keith Robinson rallied his fellow Intellivision programmers, a group known as the Blue Sky Rangers, around him, and they collectively bought the rights to both the hardware and the software, and held on to that IP for years and years afterward, and as early as the mid-90s, they were bringing it back in the form of Intellivision Lives CD-ROM games on the PC, which was later ported over to such platforms as the PlayStation and mobile phones, and you know, little handheld controllers that had games built into it. And finally, most recently, the Intellivision Flashback. Well, the original programmers, this is a very unique situation in the video game industry, the original programmers and designers from the 80s were still getting money from the deal because they had they'd bought the platform. They bought the Intellivision from Mattel when Mattel indicated it had no further interest in it. And Keith Robinson was sort of the lightning rod of that activity. He kept everyone organized, and he was the public face of Intellivision Productions, as it came to be known. And I met Keith on several occasions, and he was... He was like the Santa Claus of the classic video game world. 
that's really the best way I can describe him. And the first classic gaming expo I went to, I had the good fortune to have won a contest to get to attend what was called the alumni dinner. The alumni dinner was held the night before the show itself proper opened, and it was where all of the invited guests, the programmers and executives from the various companies that had launched these machines in the 70s and 80s, got together, let their hair down, blew off some steam, gossiped, eat, drank, and, you know, get handed awards from the show's organizers. And I was kind of petrified because you're, you know, it's hard enough to keep your composure if you just suddenly run into one of your heroes. This was running into a whole room full of them. And I just sort of shrank into the wallpaper until Steve Oida of Atari and uh, Keith Robinson kind of peeled me out of the wallpaper, marched me around the room introducing me to everybody like they had known me forever. And a lot of the contacts I have in that community happened because Keith was like, Hey, work the room! He will definitely be missed. And finally, we have lost actor Stephen First. Of course, the world knows him as Flounder from Animal House. A lot of people remember him from St. Elsewhere. Really, my favorite performance of his is still Veer on Babylon 5 which was a multi-layered, very challenging performance. He couldn't just stick with one portrayal of the character because all of the characters and the situations on that show grew and evolved over time. And, you know, again, he will be missed in recent years. He had gotten heavily into voice work. He had directed a few sci-fi original movies under a pseudonym. Could totally see why. I'm not saying he was a bad director. I mean, he directed several episodes of Babylon 5 and the uh, sequel series Crusade, many of which were uh, better than average. So he did not lack anything as a director. It's just, uh, you know, sci-fi original movie. Full stop. Enough said. So, it's time to announce the winners Last month's podcasts, I had a sort of a trivia scavenger hunt where you had to listen to both Don't Give This Tape to Earl and Select Game and listen for a specific piece of trivia in each show. The reason that we have two winners for this contest is because we had two entries in this contest. There's, you know, holding a contest, that's one sure way to find out if anyone's listening. And uh, so <laughs> I know more people than that are listening, but at the same time, it's uh, it's good to keep it humble. So since there were only two entries and I had three sets of stickers and goodies, I decided there will be two winners and I'll figure out uh, what we do with the third set of stickers at a later date. I won't have a contest this month. The winners <laughs> and the sole entrants in the contest were Kevin Bunch and David Schaller. Thanks for listening, guys. Your goodies will be on the way soon.
Now on to the actual topic of this episode of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You never forget your first fandom. In my case, we're talking about Star Trek The Next Generation, which premiered in 1987, 30 humbling years ago this year. So let's start at the beginning. Star Trek The Next Generation was first announced in 1986. And I greeted the news that there was going to be a new Star Trek series with, you know, I was okay with that. I was a Doctor Who guy. I was a Star Wars guy. Well, why wouldn't there be a new Star Trek? I mean, after all, Doctor Who changed doctors from time to time. Wouldn't you, Why wouldn't you have a new crew of the Enterprise? It, I had a very unique perspective on that, I found out. Now, I was aware of the original series. And I was aware of, and I was a fan of, the original series movies going all the way back to 1979. And I'd seen, I'm going to say, probably, I'd seen probably 75%, if not all of, the original series episodes in afternoon reruns by this point. I knew the movies were a whole different animal, and still, you know, as much as I liked the original Star Trek, it never occurred to me that there was anything sacrosanct about it. They clearly showed there were other ships in the fleet. Why wouldn't we go see what's happening on one of those other ships? Or why wouldn't we fast forward to the future, which is what was being discussed? During Star Trek's movie years, you only had a movie every two or three years with nothing in between except the official licensed novels, the game material from FASA, which had the license to do the Star Trek uh, paper and dice role-playing game, as well as a Starship combat system that they had evolved. There were occasional fan publications. Uh, the internet didn't exist yet, and so you weren't swamped with it. I was kind of excited at the thought that we might be getting Star Trek more often than every two or three years. Again, I didn't see a problem with it. And over in Starlog magazine, David Gerald started writing a column talking about the development of the show from behind the scenes, which he was heavily involved with at the time. And it was just, it was really exciting to think of. I had been too young to be aware of the hubbub around 1977 regarding a possible new Star Trek TV series back then. That is something I really only learned about later. And so... I was not jaded. I was not of the mind of, you know, here we go again, more vaporware. Tonight, the 24th century begins. Welcome to the Enterprise. In a special world premiere movie, Star Trek, The Next Generation. Ready for departure, sir. Engage. 78 years have passed since the days of the original USS Enterprise. Now a new galaxy starship has been designed with a new team of highly skilled Federation explorers. Starfleet Captain Jean-Luc Picard, Commander Riker, Executive 
executive officer, chief medical officer Crusher, and her brilliant son, Wesley, Lieutenant Commander Data, an android, the telepathic Troy, Geordi, a man with unique vision, security officer Yar, and Klingon officer Worf. Shields and deflectors up, sir. Go to yellow alert. Their first mission, investigate a new star base on planet Denim 4. Classic legend begins an all-new adventure. Let's see what's out there. Star Trek, the next generation. Now... I have a really funny confession to make. As excited as I was about the new Star Trek, I completely missed the first half of Encounter at Farpoint. And it's kind of funny because there wasn't a rerun until, I think, December of that year when they kind of hit the pause button on new episodes going into the holidays. And until that rerun happened, the only way I knew what happened in the first half of Encounter at Farpoint is that in the story itself there's this very convenient place about halfway through where Commander Riker is shown this kind of amusing highlight reel from the first half of the story to get him caught up on what's happened so far before he arrived on the Enterprise. That's how I knew. I'm glad that was there. (laughs) I loved the look of the touchscreen interface and the ship interiors, all of the uh, all of the indirect lighting, I really loved that because it was a lot like what I had just seen and fallen in love with at my grandfather's place in New Jersey in, uh, in 1986, which he had a house that had, in, uh, up until you got to the bedrooms, you know, when we're talking about the kitchen, the living room or the great room or whatever you'd call it, the front entryway, the walls did not go all the way up to the ceiling. They terminated several feet from the ceiling and built into grooves in the top of these kind of open walls were light fixtures. And so you had this light pouring out, covering everything, and yet you did not stare directly into the glare of the light itself. I always thought that was really neat, and there were lots of examples of that built into the sets on Star Trek The Next Generation. So I... uh, I fell in love with the architecture of 24th century Starfleet really quickly. I would start, uh, I remember distinctly that I spent a lot of time in school when I should have been doing other things, quite frankly, but I was drawing what I thought various rooms aboard the ship might look like based on what we had seen of the bridge and the quarters and the hallways and so on. Now. It's kind of easy to take all this for granted and regard it as old hat. Today we all walk around with handheld touchscreen devices. In 1987, this was unimaginably futuristic. You know, a lot of a lot of column space has been given over the years in various publications to how the original Star Trek predicted the three and a half inch floppy disk and the and the flip phone with the communicators. And I'm just not sure the same credit has been lavished upon Star Trek The Next Generation for basically envisioning the iPad 20 years before it existed. One of the things I really enjoyed about the show was sort of the Roddenberry, the revised Roddenberry vibe running through it. You know, now that I have watched, rewatched, and re-rewatched the original series. I am keenly aware of the differences between 
the original series and nearly everything that came after, but especially the differences between the original series and the next generation, because Roddenberry had had an entire decade of college speaking engagements and interviews and articles to refine his views on what the future, what his ideal future would be like. And it went from the original series vision of the future where people could still be in conflict, which is, I think, why the original series endures as well as it does. It went from that to something almost utopian. But given the situation that I was in at the time, as far as my my home life was concerned, the idea of people constantly being kind to each other, not being judgmental, helping each other, and you know, including everyone, embracing everyone, not just tolerating them. That was that was extremely appealing. Now, later seasons of Next Generation started trying to figure out how to ditch some of this because, and I will confess that I can see this now, the putting a damper on conflict happening between characters puts a damper on drama. I get that. I totally get it. But at the time, it uh, it really hit me the right way. Yeah, and you also have to consider that I was born and raised in Arkansas. Aside from my mother's tendencies to rail against things like institutionalized racism and classism that were happening all around us as I grew up, Star Trek The Next Generation was almost my introduction to a left-leaning worldview, and in that regard it was an incredibly powerful influence. Now, I had lost my mother at the beginning of 1987 in March, and my dad had chosen to distract himself from the pain that he was feeling from that by trying to reclaim his, you know, bachelor adolescence, even though he was in his 60s. And this led to me, and, you know, this is covered in a, a chapter in the book that I wrote, Fatherhood, Fandom, and Fading Out, in more depth, and I'm not going to take up a huge amount of time in the podcast talking about it, but suffice to say, I spent the vast majority of my high school years living alone in a two-story house because my dad simply was not around. He was out trying to reclaim his youth and distract himself that way, drinking quite a bit, and, you know, I had effectively lost my family all at once. And... The next generation helped fill some of that gap because these new characters sort of were my family. And I realize that sounds kind of suspect and ridiculous and overwrought. And I'm actually, you know, in hindsight I realize it was kind of a cry for help sort of thing. But it really is a case where the show came along at just the right time. Now, I mentioned earlier in the podcast when I was talking about Undertale, I mentioned the Apple II game, Ultima IV Quest for the Avatar. I was playing that game very heavily at this time, even though it had been out for a couple of years. And the game's emphasis on compassion and trustworthiness and thoughtfulness and good deeds, rather than, 
you know, just hack and slash through the whole game. That was also a powerful influence at the time. They hit it about the same time as Star Trek The Next Generation. And so these two things together, that was, uh, that was a significant influence. As silly as it sounds to ascribe your moral code to a television show and a video game or a computer game, they were, in fact, a huge influence at a time when it seemed like the rest of the world had, you know, backed away from me and given up on trying to teach me any of these things. So along with a new Star Trek came new Star Trek stuff. Now, I should point out for context here that sometime around when I turned either 11 or... Yeah, I think it's around the time I turned 11. My mother, in one of her moods, did something kind of... I don't know. It's, it's one of these things that kind of leaves ripples across the rest of my life. She declared my childhood over. You know, the toys are going to be put away or given away or what have you. And, you know, you're done playing with Star Wars figures. You're done flying spaceships around the room. Grow up. Kind of weird, kind of awkward to have a parent just suddenly, you know, try to dictate an end date to your childhood. You know, you must, you must grow up past this point. There is no more. So, in that context, I had sort of railed against that and kept my Star Wars stuff, but I had put it on display in my room. Um, my dad smoked a lot of cigars, and we wound up with a lot of cigar boxes, and I remember thumbtacking a bunch of cigar boxes along the along one wall of my bedroom and just putting my Star Wars characters in there because why not I still like looking at them even if I didn't get them down to play with them all the time because I was now heavily into the world of computers and bulletin board systems and things like that you know it wasn't that I didn't want the stuff around I didn't want it gone I you know I didn't want it ripped away from me and so there was a bit of a rebellion there, and there was a bit of there was a bit of tension about that. When the new Star Trek came along, and there was merchandise to go with it, it's kind of like a switch flipped in my brain, and I realized that, you know, I I was not done being a fan or a collector. Uh, first order of business was getting one of those sweet com badge pins from Lincoln Enterprises. Now, Lincoln Enterprises at the time was the official business organ of the Roddenberry family. It now exists as Roddenberry.com and still carries a lot of the same stuff. I remember I got a com badge from Lincoln Enterprises. I bought a Star Trek The Next Generation Writer's Guide and Writer's Technical Guide from Lincoln Enterprises, which, why did I need those? Well, we'll talk about that here in a little bit. So... Yeah, first order of business was to get a com badge. I wound up wearing the thing to school. You know, I would pin it onto whatever shirt I was wearing, like, you know, a nice polo shirt. It's really silly and funny in hindsight. And man, did I take a lot of crap for it, and not entirely 
undeservedly. I, I think in hindsight, this is another one of those cry for help things. I did not want to be part of the world that I was in. I wanted to be part of that world instead. Funny thing is, uh, you know, even though it's a little, a little the worse for wear, I still have that com badge. Starlog started publishing a magazine devoted solely to Star Trek The Next Generation very soon after the show premiered. It started out as quarterly and later went bi-monthly, and it had tons of interviews, it had synopses of the episodes, and it had lots of studio-approved behind-the-scenes stuff. And it was, you know, you would get the Okudagrams that they would show for various diagrams that popped up. I think they figured out very quickly that those were going to be popular with the fans. You were already getting more stuff from this one magazine, and possibly from Starlog itself, than you were getting between movies, you know, between Star Trek movies. It was just bliss. And meanwhile, in in less studio-approved territory, there was Cinefantastic, which was a, a movie critique magazine that was very genre-specific. It covered science fiction and horror. And it had an annual Next Generation issue that had these really unfiltered behind-the-scenes interviews. There was a lot of dirt dished in them. And at the same time, they were remarkably educational about how the business worked. That had a huge influence on me wanting to get into the media as a career. Were there action figures? Of course there were action figures. Galoob rolled out a, it was a very small wave. I think it was like six, six characters. And they were all Enterprise crew members. I think it was Picard, Riker, Worf, with this tiny shrunken head, Data, Yar, and Jordan. Now these figures were kind of funny. They, they were in the three and three quarter inch Star Wars scale. And the detail work was really nice on them, I thought, for the scale. However, the weird thing about them is that each one of them had a phaser permanently you know, permanently molded into one hand. You couldn't remove it. They came with tricorders that they couldn't hold because the other hand was permanently molded into a fist. Because, you know, this show was all around, you know, was, was built around these people going around shooting and punching people. Not really. I went ahead and collected them. I got the, uh, the Galileo shuttlecraft that they are scaled to, which is, that is the only toy version. And unless Eagle Moss or someone has, has done the, you know, the Andy Probert shuttle that was used the first couple of seasons before they ditched it because they couldn't ever match in a practical set all of the curves and angles on this thing. Uh, I think this is the only model version of it that you can get. Now, Galoob also did an Enterprise-D, a small die-cast metal Enterprise-D, and this was a really heavy thing, and I loved it. I still love it, because I still have it. You could actually detach the saucer section from the the engineering section, and there was detail on the section that was revealed where the battle bridge would be. It was very nicely done, and I was kind of amused whenever I got the the Enterprise D model is the first thing you get from the Eagle Moss Starship collections. It is almost exactly the same size as that Galoob Enterprise. Of course, 
you know, in 30 years, the detailing and the paintwork have improved by in quantum leaps. But it just, it cracks me up that they're almost the same size. And so I have them on display together in a case here in my house under glass. Now the Galoob stuff, together with the uh, the Doctor Who figures that I was importing from a Welsh company named Dapple, these were the first toys that I had bought for myself, you know, with allowance money, after having relegated my Star Wars collection to display items. This was really the beginning of me collecting toys as an adult, even though I was not an adult. But I was making my own decisions. I was making a decision, this is what I wanted to spend my money on, my hard-earned money. And this Batmobile over here says that I am still consistently making that very same decision. What did I think of the new Star Trek? I was thrilled with it at the time. Now, 30 years later, I can go back and watch some of the early episodes and... Oh, man. You quickly realize, in hindsight, that the amount of goodwill that the studio had and the stations had and that the fans had, even though the fans did a lot of bitching, there was a lot of goodwill just waiting for the show to get better. Because in this day and age, if you had a brand new science fiction franchise show and your third episode, your third week, was a racist piece of trash like Code of Honor... That show would be off the air before week five, regardless of how big the franchise was, and it would be gone. So, it, you know, shows used to get canceled in fairly short order in the 70s and 80s. You know, it's not like this is something that we've only just noticed in the age of the Internet. It's always happened. The Internet has invented the backlash against it, but... I'm not sure there would have been a backlash if Next Gen had disappeared a few weeks in after a train wreck like Code of Honor, which was the episode where we have Tashi Yar kidnapped and taken to the planet of the Hollywood stereotype vision of African warlords in the 1940s. Oh, that was embarrassing. You know, Star Trek made such strides in the 1960s toward racial equality at a time when that was a very troubled topic and for them to do Code of Honor three weeks into their new show was just jaw-dropping I think it went around me at the time it was kind of like eh, this kind of sucks and I couldn't put my finger on why and you know the benefit of some age and crankiness I realized that oh man was that a misstep a potentially show-killing misstep Lots of other people had opinions, too, and as I was part of the world of computer bulletin board systems, oh yeah, you got to hear their opinions. This was about the time that bulletin board systems were starting to include pipelines to the nascent internet at the time. And so you could occasionally get a glimpse at Usenet posts, and man, were people cranky about it. There was a lot of negativity that I just didn't get. I was not so attached to the original Star Trek that I had a problem with a new show or a new crew. And I've tried to keep this mindset in later fandoms, rather than the knee-jerk negativity 
that the internet also seems to have brought in with it. However, negativity or no, this was my first experience with being part of a community built around a fictional world. This was my first fandom. This was my first real experience with a fandom. Now, I had been a huge Star Wars fan since the movie opened in 1977, but Star Wars is kind of unique, and it's difficult to explain this to anyone who wasn't there at the time. Star Wars mania was beyond mere fandom because it exploded and instantly went beyond the boundaries of sci-fi fandom or just nerds. As Star Wars in 1977 was this unexpected supernova that briefly shined on everyone in the world. And for those who only saw it later on TV or weren't even born during the original trilogy, I'm sorry you missed that because it was really unique and it superseded what we would normally think of as a fandom today. Now, as for other stuff that I watched, I only knew one other kid at school who watched Doctor Who, and he wasn't that into it. He was into criticizing it for how crappy it looked next to that, that night's episode of Buck Rogers in the 25th century. And as I got older and was exposed to other things, Blake 7, the Hitchhiker's Guide TV series and radio series, the tripods, uh, forget it, no one was watching that stuff. That was that really was just me. I There was no fandom that I knew of for those shows until I started introducing people to them. Somewhere in Season 3, I noticed that an actor showed up in a different role than they had played before. And so I decided to start keeping track of actors and writers and directors and even the music composers. I was a huge fan of the music in the early years of Next Gen, back when it was Ron Jones alternating with Dennis McCarthy, and they were both just kicking butt at high warp and turning out really distinctive music before the music playbook of the show got compressed significantly later on as uh, various producers got promoted and began exerting their influence on the show. So I was now effectively, in late 89, keeping a logbook of Star Trek The Next Generation. And I started writing short summaries. I would write down the star date, you know, the earliest star date cited at the beginning of the show, if there was one. And I just started compiling this stuff mainly for myself. And then I just started sharing it on the bulletin board systems. And then it kind of snaked out into the internet as it was at the time. And that is the the birth of the website that this podcast is hosted by. That was the beginning of the logbook. And therefore the beginning of the logbook.com. At the end of season three, there was a huge cliffhanger that none of us saw coming. And, wow, I think at that point, my fandom ticked over into obsession. Probably unhealthy obsession. Star Trek was pretty much my life at that point, going into college. 
So let's kind of take stock at the influence this show had on my life. By the time Star Trek The Next Generation ended in 1994, I was working in television full-time, and that was a career move directly influenced by reading about the behind-the-scenes details of production techniques and so on that fascinated me so much. And I was effectively working in post-production at the time with no formal education in that. It was something I had stumbled into starting out in radio and then going into TV. And then I just, I had an aptitude for it because I had an interest for it that was sparked by all these CFQ articles about how they did special effects on The Next Generation. By the time the show ended in the spring of 94, I was living by myself in an apartment and I was no longer living, as William Shatner once put it on Saturday Night Live, in my parents' basement. I decided that if I was going to be alone all the time, it was going to be on my terms. I was working full-time by that point. I was able to pay the rent. And my first apartment was festooned with my collections of Star Trek figures and ships and so on. Because that made me happy in a way that not much of anything outside the front door of that apartment did. And I think that's actually the reason that those things are back on display in my house right now. By the time Star Trek The Next Generation aired its series finale, I had submitted a spec script to the show because there was an open submission policy. You had two shots at submitting an unagented script that you had to fill out a, I think it was a four-page release form, basically uh, letting the studio off the hook for any anything that might hit the air that bore any resemblance to your story because they got pitched the same stuff all the time. I understand that. Uh, looking back at it, it's kind of amazing how much liability the boilerplate on of that release form released the studio from. My rejection letter that I got fairly quickly for my script that I submitted in 1993, I believe. It is still my favorite Star Trek The Next Generation memento because a lot of them were sent out. This is the one with my name and the name of my script on it. By the time the show ended, I had decided that my worldview included compassion, kindness, and not walking all over other people. Now, it was something I was still working on because I was a brash 20-something, but that has a lot to do with who I am today. And finally, during some very low times during high school and early college when I was living at home and things were kind of bleak, as silly as it may sound, the lure of sticking around for the next episode of Star Trek The Next Generation, there are a few instances where that literally kept me alive. Enough said. Not going to turn into a uh, big sob story there. Now, Star Wars may have positioned me to become a fan of Star Trek The Next Generation or any other sci-fi that came down the pike, but The Next Generation itself has been a far larger influence on my life. In Star Wars. So why am I talking about all this now? Is it because it's 30 years since The Next Generation premiered? No, it's not. It's because it's a few months before Star Trek Discovery premieres. The 
internet is full of people complaining about a show about which they know next to nothing. The internet may have exploded and expanded exponentially during the first run of Star Trek The Next Generation on TV, but the internet has not taken on the Roddenberry ideals. There is so much negativity. And yet my feelings about a new Star Trek series debuting in a few months are tinged with hope. I hope it's good. And here's why. With the current world situation, with the current national situation that we have in America right now, we need Star Trek on the air now like we haven't needed it since 1968 during the height of the civil rights tensions. Between the political turmoil and sort of this widespread sense of existential dread and disenfranchisement, we need the Roddenberry worldview back on our screens as soon as humanly possible. This is one of the reasons I've also been such a booster of the better fan films, although the fan films have frustrated me a bit because so many of them are not, deep down, they're not about anything. They are about plugging holes in Star Trek continuity, but they are not necessarily about upholding and espousing the Roddenberry worldview and ideals that made the original shows so appealing. Now, one thing that I've talked about extensively in the past, and I am just not letting it go, is that I object to Star Trek Discovery being stuck behind a paywall. One of the best pieces of behind-the-scenes lore in Star Trek history is that when Whoopi Goldberg was a young, poor, black girl, she turned on her TV and saw Lieutenant Uhura in the original Star Trek and realized that she wanted to be in show business, but also realized, hey, it's the future, and there's someone who looks like me. I think it's a grave mistake to confine Star Trek Discovery to the Internet and possibly keep it from the eyes of a future Whoopi Goldberg who needs to see someone like herself as part of the future. It's not because I'm too cheap to pony up for CBS All Access. It's because sometimes the people who most need to see a message of hope in their entertainment are the least able to be in a position to pay for that. I think Star Trek Discovery should be broadcast over the air every episode of it. If CBS doesn't want it, Put it on the CW. I mean, it worked for Supergirl. It can work for Discovery. September 24th is when this cycle begins again. I'll be there. My logbook will be there. Onward and upward.
Father's Day has come and gone, and uh, I spent Father's Day swimming with my kids at the local water park. We have season passes this year, which is not cheap, but at the same time, once that's you know once you've ponied up for that up front, you have eliminated an entire summer's worth of you know I'm gonna have to hang on to twenty bucks every weekend to go to the park and go to the water park. And we don't have to worry about it this year. We can go whenever we like. We figured out uh, we can go Mondays as well. And so we're going to start doing that. The reason I mentioned Father's Day is that uh, this is the part of the show where I normally talk about interesting goodies and memorabilia I've gotten. And so things came at me from two directions. There are, There were a couple of things where I treated myself and... There were a couple of things that were given to me. Of interest to absolutely no one is the fact that I finally located a copy of the ELO album Zoom from 2001 on vinyl that was not over $30. And I acquired that to add to my ELO wall. Which is... It's not really an ELO wall. It's not on one wall. It's basically running in a ring on this lip on top of the cabinets in my kitchen. Um, obviously, I don't actually have the records in the sleeves. It's just the sleeves up there. But I I did that about a year ago because it reminded me very much of the, the second floor loft bedroom in my apartment in Green Bay that had this similar lip about uh, you know about a foot and a half below ceiling level. I have no idea why that was there. It's like someone said, oh, hey, we didn't use all this molding. By God, let's use it! And so there was this lip running about a foot and a half below the ceiling. The entire, you know, running a ring around the entirety of the bedroom in that apartment in Green Bay that I had in the late 90s. And so I just lined up uh, favorite album covers up there, which, you know, since it was a rather large room, like I said, it was a loft apartment, uh, I managed to get all of the ELO that I had at the time, all of the Alan Parsons Project vinyl that I had at the time, probably a few others, probably some Star Wars soundtracks, because what the hell, why not? So I've set up a similar thing in my kitchen, however, there's only room in there for ELO, and I had, I was missing Zoom when I set set that up early in 2016 for absolutely no reason other than it was goofy and it made me happy to have it up there. And so I did something that uh, sort of left a space for Zoom to come later. And so it is it is now in its rightful place. So I'm completely caught up on the ELO discography all the way back to the first album on vinyl. Jeff Lynne can now feel free to uh, throw something new at us. Hopefully a studio album and not just uh, a bunch of live tracks from recent tour appearances. Let's see, what else have we got? Boy, there's been a lot of action figures coming into this house. Um, The Funko Batman 66 Batmobile box set has uh, action figures of Batman and Robin. They are three three-quarter inch scale, also known as the Star Wars scale. 
and there is a Batmobile to match, and it is a thing of beauty. And, uh, you know, I've been waiting for that since I was about six years old. It, you know, it just makes me want to kick back with a grilled cheese sandwich and a cup of Dr. Pepper. That's That topic is just going to keep coming up for this whole podcast. You might as well brace yourself. I also finally got, and these came out several years ago, but I had not gotten them until now. There's a, uh, it's not really a box set. It's two figures on a single card. It's Gort and Klaatu from the day the earth stood still, also in three and three-quarter inch scale. So, uh, so Batman and Robin and Gort and Klaatu hanging out around the Batmobile and staring across the room at the characters from Undertale, which is something that I did not even know existed until my friend Steve mentioned that these things existed. Um, We love Undertale in this house. My oldest is nearly obsessed with it. And Fangamer.com has what they call Undertale Little Buddies, which are on average about three inches tall. Uh, Some are taller, some are shorter. It just depends on the character's height in the game. They're all scaled to each other. And the first wave includes the characters of Sans and Papyrus, who are both wisecracking skeletons. The human character, which is the player in the game. Toriel, which is a friendly goat-like creature. And a guard, a a sword and shield-wielding guard called Lesser Dog. I love the Lesser Dog figure because in the game, one of the things I really love about Undertale and one of the reasons I am more tolerant of my son's obsession with it than uh, perhaps other members of his immediate family are, is that there is kind of a morality system built into Undertale that reminds me just a little bit of the morality system in the old Apple II game Ultima IV Quest of the Avatar, which came out in 1985. And that game had a system where you were supposed to be an avatar representing a set of virtues, you know, including compassion. If if you were in combat with something and it started fleeing, you had the option of letting it go, letting it run, and not necessarily killing it. And that would benefit you in the game in ways other than experience points. And so there was... A lot more consideration had to go into your actions other than just level grinding and killing everything. And Undertale is like that too. You can you can pick your attitude in the game. You can be pacifist. You can be genocidal. You can be neutral, which leaves you open to a range of actions. But your choices affect how other characters respond to you. It dictates how many fights you're going to get into. And uh, it gives you something to think about. So we love Undertale in this house, and I really had no hesitation about picking up the figures based on Undertale. But the one, the one complaint, or not really a complaint, it's more of a caveat for any of you considering getting these if you have a kid who loves Undertale. These things are kind of delicate. They are not action figures. Um, Sans already lost a leg. Now, 
we found the leg and we stuck it to the stand and then we stuck Sansa's other foot to the stand and so everything looks perfectly normal like it should but at the same time uh yeah that's really delicate unless her dog's tail falls off just on a whim but the the great thing about the lesser dog figure is that you can uh raise his neck up which is actually it, it's not really an easter egg in the game but it's something that you do if you don't want to fight the lesser dog uh, you can basically pet him and his head his neck will just rise up almost like et until it goes off the top of the screen and then comes back uh you know several several pixels over upside down coming back from the top of the screen like you're just making him so happy his neck is extending I'm sure that's not a metaphor for anything. Um, but the action figure does that. That's So, yeah, big fan of the Undertale little buddies. I just, uh, we just learned some very hard lessons very quickly about how delicate they are. They are, you know, they have stands so they can be put up on a shelf somewhere, and they are definitely shelf figures. They are not action figures. Speaking of action figures, since we were speaking of action figures, Funko has revealed that it will be doing two box sets, three characters each, from Stranger Things. Again, in that three three-quarter inch Star Wars scale, those will be coming out in September, and they look fantastic. Uh, the accessories are awesome. Eleven has her box of Egos. Uh, Lucas has his... I almost called it a bean flip. It's a slingshot. Mike has his walkie-talkie. Uh, the Demogorgon has ugliness. It doesn't need accessories. Uh, however, in thinking about it a little bit, I realized something was bugging me, that uh, none of the kids have bicycles. That whole movie is about riding around on bicycles. So, uh, it, it it's a very mild form of disappointment, I'll tell you, because uh, I will still be getting those. I have already pre-ordered mine. There will be pre-order links in the logbook.com store for these very soon. So you can pre-order your own, and they come out in September. Also coming out in September, and there's a little bit of a story here, is the Funko Vinyl Pop of Bob Ross of the Joy of Painting fame. Now, this is the first time I have seen one of these vinyl pop figures, which these are the things that you see in all the, you know, Spencer's Gifts and Hot Topic stores and places like that. And, and they're, you know, now they've even permeated Target and Walmart and what have you. Tiny little bodies, great big oval-shaped heads with no mouths and great big eyes. They're like bobbleheads that don't bobble. And in fact, Funko started out as a bobblehead company doing sports memorabilia. So that's, uh, that's where that comes from. Uh, for several years, friends of mine have really gone down the rabbit hole of collecting these vinyl pops, and I've resisted because I, you know, I, these things are kind of big. They, they take up a certain amount of shelf space just because of the size of their heads, and I just was resisting any attempt to talk me into getting into those. And then I saw Bob Ross, and I was like, okay. There's one I've got to have. There's one I've got to have. And that's it. 
Bob Ross comes out in September. But the the coda to the story about the Bob Ross vinyl pop is the very day that that news broke, and I said, okay, I'm finally going to get one of these. I went to my P.O. box, and a friend of mine had sent me it's sort of a uh, sort of a get well present because I had been sick for so much of the month. He had sent me vinyl pops of two Batman 66 villains, namely Mr. Freeze and King Tut, my all-time favorite Batman 66 villain. I love King Tut. So, yeah, in for a penny, in for a pound. I promise it's just going to be Mr. Freeze, King Tut, and Bob Ross. There's nothing weird or inconspicuous about that lineup. It, It just is. I also recently picked up a digital camcorder. I wrote a whole blog entry about this, and I will link to it for your amusement, because it goes into more detail about this. But it is almost exactly 30 years since I got my first camcorder. And that thing cost nearly two grand, and it recorded to VHS tapes, and it was massive. I mean, it was... You know, in a pinch, you could have used it as a melee weapon, and I used the hell out of it. I still have it, in fact, intact. It still works. You have to plug it in. It won't run on batteries anymore, but it still works. But the one that I picked up recently cost 18 bucks, and it records to SD cards in 720p HD. And... I just I think part of the reason I bought it was just because I was buying a camcorder for 18 bucks. It blows my mind and it shouldn't. It you know, it's not like I've gotten behind on technology. It's not like this is one of those things that I just never saw coming. Oh, you kids with your $18 camcorders. No, that's that's not it at all. It's just it cracks me up. What am I going to use it for? I don't know. I, you know, I need to be taking videos of my kids playing. That's, uh, you know, those are moments that will never come again. And uh, I've become far more cognizant in the past couple of years of that precious time kind of passing me by. But also, I I got it for my oldest to mess around with because he is wanting to learn about video production. He's wanting to learn about shooting video. He's wanting to learn about doing voice work and editing something together. He wants to be a YouTuber somewhere down the road. And my my fatherly answer to that right now is, you're not old enough. You know, you wouldn't make it past the terms and conditions. But somewhere down the road, that's not a bad set of skills to have. That's a set of skills that I learned just by osmosis without any formal training, and it kept me employed for over 20 years. So, it's uh, it's not a bad thing to know how to do. I will be happy to pass my knowledge along to him with an $18 camcorder that weighs next to nothing. Other than that... Not much has been going on. Summer vacation. Uh, The kids went with their grandparents on a little cross-country trip. They were gone for a couple of weeks. They're back now. I miss them terribly. Uh, It turns out the timing of me getting sick 
was just kind of... It's about as perfect as that timing can get because it didn't really affect the boys. And uh, other than that, I've just been trying to get my sleep cycle back on track and uh, watching lots of baby hippo videos. Final note, a final bit of business before I close out this month's episode of Don't Give This Tape to Earl. I got an email yesterday from the hosting provider for the site. Now, I don't think it's escaped anyone's notice that I have been really ramping up the activity on the Logbooks Facebook page and that I've put a lot of time into developing the uh, the new forums and the new functions on the new forums, such as the uh, the event guide, which I have put premiere dates for various shows and various episodes and various movies, release dates for DVDs and other things. It's it's really kind of neat, and you don't have to be signed up as a member of the forums to make use of that feature. I you know I've put a lot of time into building new functionality into things and into making sure that the site is consistently cranking out content and I've noticed that the engagement on Facebook has been pretty significant in response so it's like oh so you guys want more of this that's cool well it turns out there's a flip side to that the site is exceeding the parameters of a shared hosting account, which is how it is presently hosted. Let me say that again because this is kind of a kind of a pinch myself moment in two ways. Thelogbook.com is exceeding the traffic and bandwidth and storage parameters of a shared hosting account, and they are pitching me on moving to dedicated hosting. Now I went and looked at what was generating this traffic. Uh, traffic to the site in general has increased because there's consistently new content or there is new attention focused on old content. And there's a lot of people hitting it up for the podcasts and there are a few, fair few people hitting up the event calendar that I just mentioned because I've talked about that on Facebook. And uh, it's... It, apparently bogging down the shared hosting server. Now, the problem with going to dedicated hosting is it costs a lot more. And we are still in the early baby steps of steering the site back toward being self-sustaining financially. So this is kind of a scary moment. They're telling me, okay, too much traffic for what you've got. And yet I look at the pricing on the dedicated hosting options, and it's like, whoa, there may be too much traffic for what I've got, but I can't afford to upgrade just yet. So this really becomes a question to folks who are not me who visit thelogbook.com. What say you? Lots of ways you can support the site. Go to patreon.com 
slash the logbook. Support it that way. You can go to the logbook.com store and buy goodies through amazon.com and we get a cut of that. You can go to our Red Bubble store and order all sorts of interesting t-shirts and other items. We get a cut of that, of course. So, yeah, whether or not the site can keep pace with the traffic that it's now receiving, uh, you know, really depends on how everyone supports it. I'm not trying to blackmail anyone into throwing money at me. I mean, hey, all bribes are accepted. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, yeah, we've kind of, wow. You know, I said earlier this year, I'm going to change the logo. I'm going to relaunch the site because we can be Amazon affiliates in this state again. And so I relaunched the site. And part of relaunching the site means there's got to be content. There's got to be something to draw you to the site. To see that there is anything worth supporting. And, you know, it's always about the content. At the, you know, at the ground level, the logbook.com is always about the content. And uh, apparently I may be doing too good a job at that. So we'll see what happens. I'll keep you updated. That's it for this month's Don't Give This Tape to Earl. My throat's had it with all this talking business. I'm going to go back to watching Baby Hippo videos. Thanks for listening to Don't Give This Tape to Earl. You can find the podcast at thelogbook.com slash thistape on FeedBurner and on iTunes every month that it's produced. If you like this and The Logbook's other podcasts, feel free to support us at patreon.com slash thelogbook. Your support has a direct impact on site hosting costs, podcast production, and other great content. Don't Give This Tape to Earl was written, produced, and hosted by Earl Green. High Adventure with Star Trek, the next generation. Captain Picard and the crew of the USS Enterprise. Riker, Jordy, Data, Wesley, Worf, and Troy. Ready to take on any challenge and to boldly go where none have gone before. This year, two new members join the crew in their ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds and examine new life, new civilizations. Diana Muldor is the ship's new medical doctor, and Whoopi Goldberg beams aboard as an alien humanoid in the new 10 Forward Lounge. Don't miss the all-new exciting episodes of Star Trek, The Next Generation. The legend lives on.